Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 137. We're recording on Thursday, December 17th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. We did find it. We found it finally. It's the slowest news week of the year. <laughs> yes. And usually there's like a surprise where yep. we say this is going to be the slowest news week and then something crazy happens. But this <laughs> has actually been the slowest news week of the year. Maybe next year or next week we'll get the publishing equivalent of the surprise Beyonce album. Right. I, maybe. Uh, I, I used to say that in the summertime <laughs> when we first started the show. Like, you know, I thought, in, you know, in August and the dog days, right. there's always something. But I guess that was the fall was a coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there's not really much news going on. Uh, I guess everyone is going to see Star Wars and or, and or Hamilton. I can't get or away both. from. Or both. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a kind of a slow week, but there's some stuff going on, but uh, not much in the way of headlines. I got some follow up. Um, we've got some news, and I guess that the, next week we're going to do a, a year in review show in anticipation that it'll probably be the slow week. And I guess we're going to try to, we're going to go, we asked, um, and I got some good response already from email, what your f- readers' favorite books of the year are. And if you have any nominees for like the books of 2015, and by that I mean that not necessarily you thought were the best or even the most widely acclaimed, but the ones you kept hearing about. Like if you were going to bury a time capsule, uh, of books from 2015 to sort of capture the year in books and publishing, what 10 or 15 books would you put in it? Already disqualified just because it's so obvious to put in our Ghost of a Watchman and uh, and Gray and let's see, A Little Life and Between the World and Me. Those are that's kind of like RSTLE on um, Wheel of Fortune. They just give those to you. We're just going to give those four, but we're looking for the next six. And I think after that it gets a little less obvious. Those four are pretty easy, but after that it gets a little trickier. Yeah, those are the obvious ones. And uh, along the same lines, if you have stories, uh, you know, news stories, things that happened in publishing this year, the stuff that we talked about oh, on the yes. show that stands out as particularly memorable, we are looking for you know those highlights because we'll do things like the hero of the year, and yep. the, we usually do like the turkey of the, the year. Goat we of the big, year. Yep. Yeah, we had some big turkeys this year, so there's going to be competition. Yeah, we'll go back and, you know, if you're if you're just curious to, rem- to remind yourself, longtime listeners or even just, you know, recent listeners, we keep all the links to the sh- stories we talk about in the show notes. Each, ep- each episode has its own po- uh, post on bookride.com. Go to bookride.com slash podcast. You can sort of scroll through and take a look. So if anything reminds you there. Um, I mean, I think there's I don't really think there's any question that number one overall draft pick will be the Harper Lee situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, it's it's interesting. You know, it, it is. This is one of my favorite tasks each year. Yes. It's come to be of like spending an afternoon scrolling back because we've been using the same Google document for the entire life <laughs> yes, it's out of, of control. this show. So I, I can't even I have no idea how many pages it is now um, in the last two and a half years that we've been doing this. But scrolling back through a year's worth of links and being like, oh, right, that yeah. thing happened. Yeah, you know, a couple, you know what? I haven't heard that much about the Stephanie Meyer gender bending thing after. Oh right, that, yeah, isn't the that Twilight surprising? Thing. I haven't heard a lick about it. 
Um, it's anyway. interesting. So that's, you know, maybe they're non-stories of the year we can talk about, two things we thought were going to be bigger. Right. Biggest thing that got talked about before it happened and then not talked about once it existed in the world. Uh, city on fire. Um, well, <laughs> We do have numbers for we that. We do. Those, well, let's do our first, let's do our first uh, sponsor and then we can get into some follow-up and uh, start uh, whacking some of these moles. Uh, this week, we are sponsored by Mad Men Unzipped, fans on sex, love, and the 60s on TV. It's by Karen E. Dill Shackelford, Cynthia Vinny, Jerry Lynn Hogg, and Christina Hopper Lasenicki. Uh, this is the story of the Mad Men fan phenomenon, which is solidly in our shared wheelhouse mm-hmm. here on the Book Riot podcast. Um, all of these authors are media psychologists. They're also dedicated Mad Men fans, and they explore how Mad Men viewers make meaning from the fictional drama. Uh, It also includes interviews with contemporary advertising industry pros and their views of the ad business in both its modern form and what they make of how the show Mad Men looked at the past of advertising. The result is uh, what they say a cutting edge psychological piece of research that crunches and codes online fan commentary to understand how fans use the show to debate complex social issues. So probably when we did that Mad Men finale show and we both had like a jillion tabs open of Mad Men... (laughs) commentary. These psychologists went and they coded the language that reviewers use and that fans use in online forums and their blog posts and on social media to determine like what the common themes are and how people are talking about this thing. So it looks at questions like, what do the 1960s mean to us today? And how well does the 21st century measure up against that really famously turbulent decade Mm -hmm. in advertising? Which characters do fans identify with? And which ones do they love to hate? Cough, Ken Cosgrove. Uh, How would fans unfurl the Mad Men storylines if they were in charge? What makes a good man? And has it changed over time? Um, That was one of the really central questions of the show. Is Don Draper a good man or not? Will he ever become better? Um, Can people change and uh, how should husbands and wives treat each other? How should parents treat their children? Sort of looks at the workplace atmosphere of Mad Men, but also the family and personal lives of the characters that we got to see. Um, so it, it incorporates not just online commentary, but also fan fiction, cosplay, cocktail making, vintage furniture collecting, and how fans integrate the show into their lives and use it sort of like as a lens to make sense of their own choices in work, in leisure, and in love. Uh, so again, that's Mad Men Unzipped, fans on sex, love, and the 60s on TV. It's available now wherever books are sold. We'll have a link in the show notes for you to pick it up. I'm going to be reading this one. I'm interested in this. I really do. I miss it. It was this year that it ended. It was in January, right? It feels like a million years ago, but it was this year that came to a close. There is a big Mad Men-shaped hole in my TV watching lives. There's no doubt about that. Me too. There's just nothing. The left. This season of The Leftovers was really good. Mm -hmm. Um, Like it was interesting TV to watch, and it made me think about how interesting Mad Men was all the way through. And I I miss it. I think that might be happening soon. I might binge through Mad Men. There's not that much of it. Maybe we should do an After Dark of our other our our favorite non-book things of 2015. Oh, that would be fun. We, maybe next week or, well, let's see how we do today. <laughs> now I'm thinking of the best things. I, I saw. My TV, my TV diet is, well, both Michelle, we watch largely the same things. It is a, mm. it is a uh, you think I'm going on some sort of crash diet for TV, but it's, it's not for want of wanting to eat. It's just, I can't find anything I like. But anyway. Yeah, there's, there's nothing ringing my bells quite like Mad Men. Not did. Mad Men. So um, thanks so much to Mad Men Zip for sponsoring the show. All right, let's get through some updates, follow-ups. You know, we, we've covered enough stories that are ongoing. We could have a whole episode that's just follow-up, though we don't want to do that. 
James Patterson did indeed put on his metaphorical Santa hat this week, and we've talked before about his pretty uh, unprecedented program of direct support for libraries and bookstores in the U.S. Um, Part of his $2 million in grants and bonuses that he's giving to independent bookstores and school libraries was distributed this week. Um, Holiday bonuses direct to 87 independent booksellers totaling $250,000. He went and the checks were sent out, I guess. Yeah. There's a list of the recipients, um, and we'll put the link in the show notes where you can go see them there. I thought I might recognize someone, though a lot of bookstores I've been to and know, and I follow a bunch of them on Twitter, are are recognizable. Mm -hmm. A couple here... here in New York. There you go. Um, now, no longer in New York. Oh, uh, McNally Jackson, uh, Three Lives, which is... Have you ever been to Three Lives in the village? No, Rebecca? I've not been oh, there. Oh, it's like the platonic ideal of an independent bookstore. Like, it's on this corner of the village, and it's got like that those wooden embossed letters that are in gold on like a black, uh, you know, on, on black lacquered wood. You uh. know, it's named after a Gertrude Stein book. Like it's in great. And they they have unbelievable taste um, in terms of their selection. And not to say that there aren't other great bookstores out there, but when I, when I, when sort of the uh, archetype of uh, independent bookstore springs into my head, I always think of three life, three lives books. They're on there. Uh, Roscoe books in Chicago, Illinois, which is a relatively new bookstore, but a friend of the show and friend of the side, Greg Zimmerman works there. Uh, yeah. I, it doesn't look, it, Emily Heap was the winner there. Um, any other names look familiar to you? I know bookstores. Any other specific names? Look yeah. Familiar to you? Um, Kevin Sampsel at Powell's in your yeah, new in hometown of Portland. Uh, he's a great writer as well. I read his ah. memoir a few years ago called A Common Pornography. Um, it was really excellent, but he is a bookseller. He's been a bookseller at Powell's for, I think, like a decade, mm. um, a career bookseller. So it was cool to see his name on there. I follow him online and cool to see him get recognized for that. I recognize Unabridged Books, which is also in Chicago. It's one of my favorite Chicago bookstores. They have a whole wall um, that's dedicated to the Penguin Classics, and it is just the most beautiful, like the spines of all those Mm. Penguin Classics altogether uh, is just the most beautiful thing. The King's English in Salt Lake City, another really famous, well-known indie bookstore. Skylight Books in LA. There's Prairie Lights in Iowa City, where Marilyn Robinson likes to hang out. Uh, We got Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C. So, And one more page in Arlington, which is uh, opened only in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know uh, Lelia Nebaker, who won the the award there. So this was really cool. There were 2,848 nominations. Wow. I mean, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. It's really great. I'm glad people did it. Um, The bonuses ranged from $1,000 to $5,000. And that's not indicated. How much each person got isn't indicated on this. But I would love to read some of the entries. Like, I think it would be so cool if they did a, like, here is, you know, here, oh, Sweet Pea Flaherty, who owns King's Books in Tacoma, Washington. He is a, a good friend of uh, our coworker, Jen Northington, and just, mm. he's a great, he's a great guy. Um, so that's cool to see his name, but it would be cool to see, like, Sweet Pea got nominated by this customer, and here's what they said about him. Um, Not a bad list of uh, bookstores to visit uh, in your oh, life yeah. either, if you're looking for, a, I mean, you know, it's one thing, I've looked before for, like, a map or, like, a Google map of independent bookstores we could search and just to see if you're going somewhere what you to go check out but this one um is pretty interesting too because they've got dedicated and uh grant worthy booksellers there yeah um, right you can use the IndieBound website to search for indie bookstores in wherever you're going to go visit but not all indie bookstores participate yeah, in IndieBound, yeah, and there's right. no like information to help you discern if this is a good store or not um also patterson announced that he was going to add 350 more school grant recipients to the program 
Um, in his partnership with the Scholastic Reading Club, over the past decade, Patterson's given more than a million books to students all over the U.S. I want to see more of the big, you know, swimming pools full of money authors do stuff like this. Yeah, I was thinking about that when um, Zuckerberg made his announcement about giving away all the money, basically, mm-hmm. in the world that we've right. all, you know, we've all helped him acquire. <laughs> um, Patterson, I think, has the biggest war. Ch- it's probably him in uh, uh, Rolling, right? I would think so. I, you know, I would think so. Who else at this point? I mean, I guess I, I would guess Suzanne Collins is probably sitting on a nice little war chest. Uh, Stieg Larsson's Stieg, widow. St- uh, Stieg Larsson. You know, Dan Brown does okay, uh-huh. I've heard. Our boy Stephen King probably does all right. Oh, Stephen King, St- yeah. Stephanie Meyer, uh, George R. R. Martin. Um, you know, I think a little book-related philanthropy would be in order. There? Yeah, some sort of like guild of authors that are going to like they should make an organization and do a thing. Oh, that's interesting. Kind of like what is it, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett? They have their yeah, own foundation right, right. where they sort of basically to to um, cut down on overhead and to give the biggest, you know, put the put the most uh, muscle behind what they care about doing. They they've uh, you know, it's like a hundred billion dollar endowment or something like that. I mean, it's a crazy amount of money. Okay, so there's that's James Patterson. We talked about that. We thought we'd follow up about that. More follow up. Um, Claire V. Watkins and Marlon James. I haven't listened to this. I'm going to uh, in the in the fullness of time. We're both guests on uh, NPR to talk about her um, essay on pandering that was in Tin House, and then Marlon James' response, and then the responses to the response, and basically the whole conversation that has been happening around her on pandering article. Um, you know, so far from what I've seen, it's been pretty civil. I mean, there's been some disagreement. There's been some critique, I would say, but I think mm-hmm. it's fallen short of sniping or snarking or anything like that from any corner, at least that I've seen it so far. Um, have you listened to this yet? I've listened to parts of it. Mm-hmm, okay. And I was, was listening to the beginning and sort of skipping through. And then I read the highlights that are on the NPR link that we'll have in the show notes. It is very civil. And that's been the interesting thing when we talked about the Watkins essay a couple shows back and how it was, I think, the publishing-related essay of the year. Um, She really said some important things, but also she said them as, you know, a person who has the particular set of experiences that she has. And we said we hoped that it would be a jumping-off point um, for more people to start discussing their experiences. Marlon James did that in the Facebook post that you mentioned. Other authors have written responses as well. And there seems to be, this seems to look like the ball rolling a little faster in publishing discussion, blah, blah, in publishing discussing intersectionality and you know race, class, and gender, and how all of those things tie together for writers and for the audiences that writers are supposed to be trying to attract, and what happens when you pander to those or when you choose not to pander uh, to them, what the costs of doing that are. This uh, it's really interesting. I'm glad that these conversations are resulting from that first essay. Um, I think this se- the segment on NPR so far what I've listened to has definitely been worth the time mm-hmm. um, that I've spent listening to it. And they're very respectful of each other. I think uh, Watkins and James both came to this, you know, wanting to have a discussion about ideas. Um, I've read several pieces of commentary and critique that I thought misinterpreted some of them willfully and some of them unintentionally. Uh, James's initial remarks about that audience of white female writers that you're supposed to appeal to. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to sell big. Uh, so seeing that conversation come back to the person who started it um, and, and Watkins, who is a, a white woman who reads and writes, ha- her having a chance to respond has been really interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So there's some holiday listening for you, too. There's also there's highlights um, in that have been transcribed. So if you're if you're right. not in the mood to listen to it, you can also read. There'll be a link in the show notes there. Some of the highlights from the discussion I thought was 
Uh, really very interesting. Um, let's see. Let's let's marshal on. Let's marshal on here. What else we got? All right. Well, this week, uh, Simon & Schuster launched a serial fiction app for romance superfans. Hmm. Uh, it's called Crave. Uh, it's created by Atria Books, which is an imprint at Simon & Schuster, and Paragraph, which is a tech company that provides solutions for things like this. Uh, it's a subscription service that offers users access to serialized fiction from their favorite romance authors. They choose the author they want to subscribe to, and then they get daily installments of that author's latest work before the novel is sold to the public. Hmm. The subscription also comes with extra content that enhances the story. I downloaded the app, and some of that extra content is texts from your book boyfriend. What? <laughs> okay. Like you, like you get texts from the dude in the book. No. Okay, <laughs> I mean, whatever. Yeah, sure. Whatever. If you like that, uh -huh. go for it. Not um, for me. Right. Video featuring the main characters, messages from the author. Um, I think this is a super smart move. It was romance superfans that broke the romance portion of <laughs> Oyster, Oyster subscription yeah. service. And we saw that happen at Scribd as well, where they had to start making changes to the romance catalog because they just really grossly underestimated how mm -hmm. many books romance superfans were going to read. And so the romance fans were costing them money, like $8.99 a month for your subscription. And you, you're, you're actually reading like a dozen books. Um, so this is an imprint that knows and presumably understands the romance superfan a little bit more, um, is giving them access to new work from their favorite authors before it's available. So maybe it's like a chapter at a time from a book that's going to come out all together later on. You just get to read it early. So early access is cool. And it's a daily fix. Yeah. So it's three ninety nine a month and you subscribe to one author at a time, it looks like? Yes. Uh huh. That's really Which, interesting. I yeah. mean I so and it's it's a book that's gonna come out in print later print an ebook as, you know, a whole book at one point later mm -hmm. on. So you're paying I guess my question is, what are they getting from the reader that they weren't going to get anyway? Because presumably, if you're going to subscribe to that author, you were going to buy the book, and the book is more than three ninety nine. Yeah, maybe they are going to hope that those people buy the books after anyway. the fact. So they're, I think it hmm. it also gives them a hook onto these, like it, onto oh, oh, it gives them a direct connection to their most passionate reader, right? Like yeah. none of the publishers have been successful in getting people to consistently buy ebooks direct from the publisher because all of them demand that it goes through proprietary apps, but every publisher is interested in connecting directly to their customers. And this right. is a smart way to get your hooks into those romance super fans. They're doing things that are fun right now, like polling readers on which celebrities they think resemble the book's leading man. And then they hire that celebrity to film short videos as the character. Mm. Um, so there are also like, I think cool crowd involvement things that are happening, but they could presumably use that for deeper research at some point. Like you could put out, you could add a feature here. That's like, here are three um, unknown authors, read these and give us your feedback. And that's they interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. Knows? It's interesting. Um, Cause I, I like the idea of, I mean, we talked about in the last show, I think it was just last week of like, can you, Give something your super fans want to pay you more money for. That's the that's right. the generous way of putting it. <laughs> the ungenerous way would be squeezing uh, your super fans. So I guess the I'm surprised that it's just one. Um, also, I guess I'm surprised that it's early. Mm. You know, like. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like I would almost think what you'd want to do if you could is something that's not going to appear as a book later. 
But I'll be interesting to see this. Also, we had a little birdie. Thank you so much. We got your email and, and the tip that um, there is a Harlequin subscription service on the horizon. Oh, interesting. Like in the next couple of months. And I don't exactly know what the parameters that are. I don't know if it's an all-you-can-eat from all the Harlequin things. I don't know if it's something more like this Crave app where it's, you know, specific limited number of titles, even just because you can only subscribe to a limited number of things. I would guess Simon & Schuster doesn't have the requisite content to fulfill, you know, everything they're trying to do with Crave for every title that they're publishing. Um, so I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. You know, the trying to monetize more the romance super fan is a super interesting business problem, it seems to me, for, for these is. publishers. I would love to see HarperCollins do this with their Avon romance imprint. Mm. They have tons and so much backlist. Oh, Harlequin. I mean, good God. Right. Yeah. Maybe, actually, maybe this is the thing where the, like, consortium of publishers should get together and, like, you know, bring Simon & Schuster's romance imprint, bring Harlequin, bring Avon, and create a, like, publisher agnostic or multi-publisher romance superfan app. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's tricky, I guess, with any subscription service, and we've, I think we talked about this a little bit with, with for romance especially, is readers, you know, we, we've done studies where the average romance reader is not your average reader. They read right. a lot more than your average book lover, really, of any stripe, uh, you know, crime or fantasy or sci-fi or whatever. They just read so many of them that you've, it's a numbers problem because what, what are you going to charge for a subscription service that you can make up the money in if they read – 15 books a month or eight right. books a month even, or, or six books a month even. You can't charge $4.99. Um, so maybe there's some sort of situation where there there's so many romance novels that have been published that are out of print. Maybe it's a backlist-only sort of service. Mm-hmm. That would make a lot of sense to me. Though ebooks again, also make that a little less pressing because if you have ebooks and you've done a good job of converting them, you don't have to... Uh, you know, you don't have to make them exclusively part of the subscription service because someone could go buy them for two ninety nine on ebook, and that's the other thing about romance books, especially on ebook, is they're less expensive. So you can spend if you spend twenty five dollars a month as a romance reader on ebooks, you can you know you can buy ten fifteen books if you buy deals, especially. So you know, finding the right solution is going to be super interesting. Now, that point you made about using someone's favorite author as a hook to get them to discover others might be the way to do it. Um, you think of it as sort of a loss leader to expand your users' romance reading horizons to get them hooked into other authors and genres yeah. or something like that. And if they do this, you know, if they connected it to like Goodreads, then you could do a like at the conclusion of whatever the thing is you're currently reading. It could be like, you have just finished reading, you know, Sally Jane's new romance novel, blah, blah, blah. Like click to rate it on Goodreads and then use that to start early buzz, um, you know, that can snowball into bigger discovery for those new authors from the more like rank and file romance reader. But there's something to be done. Like the romance reader is the reader for some kind of subscription service because they do read so much. And they do, you know, they do spend a lot of money on books. They do want access to special content. It seems right to try to cater something to that reader rather than Mm -hmm. to try to create your subscription service in a way that edges out that reader, which it seems like Scribd and Oyster just neither had a, neither of them had a sense of what the romance reader was going to be like. I mean, the other problem you run into is you could use such a service for romance readers Kind of like what Oyster was trying to pivot towards by having direct book sales within the app. The problem is most people who spend money through apps 
by our use iPhones. And the way that Apple has the App Store set up is they take a, a big 30% cut. Right. Perhaps that cut is less than what Amazon takes, um, and you get direct data that Amazon doesn't get you. I mean, it could be a Trojan horse for a direct-to-consumer ebook retail situation. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be the other way to do it. But, you know, you think we get all these businesses that want to be Uber for X or Netflix for X. And I think about this all the time because, like, what is the problem Netflix really solved? And the problem was going to Blockbuster Video, right? I mean, and how that, Blockbuster didn't have everything. It didn't have everything you need to get out of there and something would be checked out. But the original Netflix was you'd get, you know, a DVD in the mail. Um, which is a business that still you know, Netflix still provides that. Um, but then they moved to making it even easier where it just streams and you just pick it up right there. So if you're really going to be the Netflix for something, it's not that you're making something all you can eat. It's that you're solving an access problem, right? right. That's what Netflix really did. Right. But in books, I don't think you have that access problem because of eBooks. I, I mean, you know, the, the only difference would be that you price it where it's all you can eat. But I don't know for romance that that makes any sense because they're buying a bunch of retail priced books anyway. I don't. I'll be interested to see. I, like I said, I, I'm sure someone smarter than me can figure it out. It just for the way my brain works, I don't have a great idea for how it, it's going to make any sense because it seems to me that any discount you're going to give on someone to read backlist or something through your subscription service, which is basically what these things are offering you, you're gonna it, you're gonna lose that in direct sales and just them purchasing the book somewhere else. I, I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Maybe I think you it's do tricky. something. Maybe you do something with Crave, like Crave subscribers get you know access to a signed copy of the print edition when it comes that out. That could be or, something like that. Or yeah. you can order like you can order a special thing. Um, you know, Sally Jane's new novel came mm-hmm. out. You read it on Crave. Uh, you get first dibs at we like we have a hundred signed copies, and Crave users get first dibs at buying those yeah. signed copies or something. But it's really interesting. I'd like to see somebody try it with like mysteries and thrillers too, like other you know sort of popcorn genres yeah. that you can power through and that are page turning and that people who consume them consume a whole lot of them. Right. Uh, but it's I'm really excited to just see what happens with this is an experiment that somebody needed to conduct with romance readers you know, and the, target. I was thinking about that to too. Them. Like what other sort of segments of the book market would be particularly pro- possibly lucrative for a subscription service. And I was thinking maybe like business books mm. um, because just for I mean, people who read business books tend to be more affluent on the whole. Um, they also don't, some of them have expense accounts and they consider part of professional development. Whereas if you had sort of a business book subscription service, you could, you know, it's also hard to find good ones. I found uh, as, as someone who's been trying to read a bunch more and, you know, educate myself about like running a business. Um, it's a little difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff between the, the hucksters and, and the, and the gurus and the, and the people who really know what they're talking about or have something to offer. Um, and so that might be one where, and the sticker price on business books tends to be higher, even in ebook. They don't tend to like go on sale after a, a long period of time. So maybe that's one. Maybe you have to go not up market in terms of, I don't know, some cultural snobbery, but in terms of sticker price. Yeah, that would be really interesting. You could even with business books, because as you've said, it is so hard to find the good ones. Um, you could even do like a pre-programmed like year in business reading yeah. subscription where like everybody will just get it's, you know, 12 books that are curated by people who know and have some other content. So we're on the yeah, author you get with one it. every month, right? Yeah. Here's something else from the author. Here's like a case study that used this. Like here's another company that used this book. Um, here's a company that used getting things done to structure its, you know, internal <laughs> right. stuff. Um, are uh, you suggesting we, we start the service? It sounds like that's what you're pitching here right now. <laughs> I mean, we could. Um, the other thing I we guess could. they could be doing with Crave, sorry, I'm going back to what yeah. the use would be. Maybe 
trying to build buzz for the pub, the street date. Mm-hmm. This could be a part of it. Like you get super fans out there reading and talking about the book so that they review it on Goodreads and they tell their romance reading friends and write blog, you know, like right, exactly. that could be another thing is like they're charging something to these people to be, you know, uh, uh, super, uh, street, the street team it's, essentially. Yeah. Uh, it's the forward. early access. I think that is yeah. really what makes Crave appealing because like the, a romance reader, typically, I think you're reading more than a chapter a day. So yeah. this is, I, w- I think this is additional, like you're still reading whatever it is that you're reading, but then you've got Crave and you read your one mm-hmm. fix a day from Crave. It's early access, which is really exciting. Um, I always, I, well, I tend to forget how exciting early access yes. is because it's just like a part of our lives working in publishing that we're always reading things before they come out. But it's really exciting for most readers to get to read something before their friends can buy it um, or before you can walk through a bookstore and see it. And then later you get to walk through the bookstore and be like, oh, I read that before it came out. Um, I got, that's a really I got fun thing. access to something early this week that I haven't been excited. I can't, I don't know if I can, I'll have to ask the person who provided me because I don't, not sure what the reviews oh, say. Um, I, I can tell is. you, I'll tell you off fair. <laughs> and if I, if I get permission, I'll tell everyone that. I know that's unfair, but I got as excited as I've been in a while to get something early. And it's super early. It's like eight months early. Ooh. So anyway, uh, it, it, it's a PDF, which I'll, I'll, you know, I'll uh-huh. allow because I'm so excited, but normally I wouldn't touch it, but, uh, I'm like doing mental math about what's coming Yeah, I got a little year. thrill and I, re- it reminded me, it's funny that you should mention it. It reminded me, oh yeah, this was, cause I remember the back in the day, I think I mentioned to you early this week or last week that the first advanced review, review copy I ever got was for uh, Bird Cloud by Annie Proulx, which came mm. out when I was first doing my blog. I guess it must have been the summer of May of 2010, I think I got it. And I had only started my blog like three weeks before, and I like cold pitched someone, and they sent it to me. And it was super, I mean, it was really exciting uh, to feel like you were, you know, pulling back behind the curtain. But the mm-hmm. thing you, that when you pull back behind the curtain, you see that it's, you know, just a little white dude um, there. <laughs> okay, let's see. Let's move along. Uh, let's move along down the tracks. Uh, where do we want to go here? Hmm. Mm, let's go to the bookstore. Speaking while we're on sort of alternate yeah, book yeah, let's do retail that. situations. Um, this was a, from a couple weeks ago, and I guess we just forgot to put in the show notes. A bookshop where everything is recommended. So this is a new bookstore that's going to be in Narrowsburg, New York, you can't make that up, especially when you when you hear what the what the the shtick is. Um, so here he's the editor of chief of Out Magazine. His name is Aaron Hicklin. He's opening a new bookstore, and his concept is to present collections of volumes handpicked by various creatives: Tilda Swinton, Michael Stipe, Lena Dunham, and Edmund White, to name a few. So it's a celebrity curated bookstore, basically. Which is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting for a lot of reasons on both sides, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like it's it's small. It's five hundred and fifty square feet. Yeah, that's and not all a the ton spines are. Well, every title is, at least has one copy cover out just from yeah, the picture faced here, out. faced out, so you can you know it makes it easy to browse. Um, I guess so. The, the the job this bookstore is being hired to do different than other bookstores is. Curation, right? Well, I think so. I also think that's kind of a conceit because most indie bookstores are built on right. Well, they're curation. just they're solving the problem in just a different way, I guess. Right. Is what I'm trying a, to say. Right. Yeah. Th- these are the things that our booksellers have read and selected for our neighborhood. What we know about the readers who come here, and this is a broader like this knows about what famous people who are interesting mm-hmm. like, and then you have to hope that the customer who's attracted to those people come in. It's a different 
direction of making the recommendations um, rather than like, let us talk to you. It's here's what Lena, do you know, do you like Lena Dunham? Here's what she is into. I think it's really interesting because we've seen this happen like on Twitter and it happens a lot on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, Celebrities take pictures of what they're reading because they're normal people who take pictures of their lives and put them on Instagram. And it's like, there's Taylor Swift's cat and there's the book that Taylor Swift is reading right now. Um, Mindy Kaling does it. I know, um, Matt Nathanson, who's a musician, does it. And one of our editors, Kelly Jensen, did a post about all of the books that he had Instagrammed. And so you can, like, through social media, have a decent sense of how much you have in common with some of these celebrities and, I guess, how well their recommendations are going to fit you. But, like, will there be... Like, are there going to be shelf talkers? Like, is there a Tilda, Sw- a Tilda Swinton shelf talker about why she liked I, I that think book? what I think some of these, he's probably contacted people directly, but I think some of them are also pulled from, you know, the list we see that appear in the New York Times or, you know, sure. where people are out there shilling a book and they do content, quote unquote. Um, I mean, one thing this guy should work on is um, uh, some... Uh, you know, I see two non-white people out of right. 40, it looks like, right, so far. Um, so that's one thing to look at. I, I get, you know, since this is not any way, kind of, shape, or form uh, I care about finding out books, I don't find it particularly compelling personally. I'm not sure that it helps. I mean, I guess if you ha- if you're a super fan of one of these people, then maybe you want to do it. I mean, I'm sure that if... Taylor Swift started a book club. We talked about this, you know, and, and mentioned, mm-hmm. well, here's the book I'm reading this month. She would move some units. Whether or not it's enough to keep an independent bookstore open, I, I, I'm not sure. I just, yeah, it seems that's... it seems a little bit, there's something a little bit cynical about it to me. I don't, I don't mm. know. You know, it's a little bit like people are only going to buy books if they can attach a celebrity from them. I just don't think that's the way that people shop at independent bookstores operate on the whole, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah. I don't know if I go quite to the cynical place, but I do think it's a misunderstanding of how readers get recommendations. Because yeah. um, deciding to read a book that someone recommends to you, at least in my experience and from what I've heard from our readers, <clears throat> excuse me, and our listeners, is that it hinges really on trusting the source of the recommendation and either knowing that you have some things in common with the person who's recommending the book to you. And so it's likely that you'll like this thing that they liked, or you know that you've liked books that they've liked in the past, or you just have a general sense of like, this is a trustworthy recommendation. I trust this person's sensibilities Mm -hmm. for some reason, Um, which is what makes good independent bookstores so good, you know, that you develop a sense of them and you can know like who's your favorite bookseller there who really gets you. Um, Or Kelly uh, Justice, who owns the fountain here in Richmond, will like as new things come in, she sits them aside knowing which customers she should hand them to. Like, that's a beautiful thing that independent bookstores do that this sort of, I think, misunderstands, like, why is a person going to walk into this store? Yeah. Um, in the same way that we talked about those stores that were like, this is a bookstore in Florida that's all just books by people who live in Florida. Like, okay, but why would you go in there instead of anything else? Like, also, you could get most of these recommendations or a lot of them if you just followed the people online I right. would think. yeah I think that's interesting I guess I guess if you take the celebrity piece out of it like that's only the mechanism by which this um, bookstore is narrowing the funnel of what to stock you know that's another way of thinking of it like you know it is true like even my beloved court Street books in in Brooklyn still has way more books than I can browse right mm-hmm. and so 
if there are fewer books and there's sort of more attention put on each book, the browsing experience can become different because it's more like, I don't know, it's almost more like eating at a buffet rather than going to a supermarket. Like you kind of do consider every dish at a buffet. Where at the supermarket, you might browse the aisles, but also you kind of are in and out for a lot of what you just are already have on your list. So I, I think there's something maybe to think about in that regard. I just yeah. don't know how many people are, I mean, maybe it's just enough to get someone to spend a minute longer thinking about a particular title if they see that, say, uh, let's see, Carrie Brownstein loves the Argonauts. That's just mm-hmm. one of the books I'm picking off. It's, you can, they have a website where you can order stuff and see all the lists too, onegrandbooks.com, uh, onegrandbooks.com if you're interested. So it could be just a way of like giving people a pause to consider a book differently because someone they've heard of or admires or like the works they do um, might be interesting. Yeah. It is like, and I see Mary Louise Parker is listed here and I loved her book. So, and and now I'm interested in how she thinks. And so I would be interested in what she has to recommend. But I guess I'm wondering, like, I agree with you that narrowing down the number of dishes on the buffet is helpful. Um, Having the buffet instead of having the supermarket is helpful. But is this the way to get somebody to be more likely to like select any one of these dishes? Um, yeah, we're to- we're torturing. I am torturing this metaphor, uh, but it's I don't, it's interesting. I don't think it solves a problem. Like, are there readers sitting around like, man, I would really read more if only I knew what celebrities were recommending. Yeah, I don't think that. You know, what I might be interested in—that's sort of a spin on this—was maybe if it weren't so much celebrities um, and quote unquote creatives generally, but maybe like people from different profession and walks of life or expertise areas like Siddhartha Mukherjee's 10 favorite science books, right? Next to right. Uh, Zaha Hadid's 10 favorite books about architecture next to, uh, I'm trying to think. Michael Pollan's favorite books yeah, about Yeah, Michael Wilbon, who's a sports writer in Washington, yeah. D.C., his favorite uh-huh. sports books. Like, sure. that's thematic, you know, sort of intersection of theme and personality at one and the same time. That right. I might get a little more interested yeah, in. Yeah, I think you'd take like the specialist or the expert or, you know, like Dan Brown's favorite thrillers. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And some of these seem to have a little more thematic coherence than others. So, you know, take it as it comes. Um, Wasn't this kind of how you were doing some of your year of business reading at the beginning? Like you were picking each new book based on a title that was was mentioned mentioned in the previous one? Yeah, and I still have a long list of stuff I want to get to. But yeah, kind of daisy chaining um, the books together by reference. That that that's an old habit picked up in academia, where the best way to find a new research material was to look at the footnotes of something you've already mm-hmm. read and uh, daisy chain them together that way. But yeah, that's that's might be a way uh, of doing it. Um, so yeah, that's one grand books in Narrowsburg, New York, which I believe is up the Hudson Valley and in one of these affluent small towns, which would make sense. I mean, it, you know, these are. Some of it, too, is being specific and different enough to give even the bookstore a reason to come in the bookstore. Like, if I was in Narrowsburg, I certainly would go in this store. I mean, there's no question about that um, at this point because I want to see what's going on. <laughs> okay, um, let's see. Should we do another sponsor? Let's do yeah, another let's sponsor. Go to our next sponsor. So Penguin Random House Audio is back. And I think there's still time to get into a December giveaway, their best, uh, best audiobooks of 2015 if you go to penguinrandomhouseaudio.com, uh, you can go and enter into a prize pack of best-selling books from the year. 
they're, you know, titles, a lot of the titles we talked about, frankly, last week, um, when we're doing the best-selling books of the year, John Grisham's Rogue Lawyer, Eric Larson's Dead Wake, Paul Hawkins' Girl on the Train, these are all PRH titles, all available on audiobook from PenguinRandomHouseAudio.com. The other thing that they want us to mention, and it's, it's a super good idea, as we talk about audiobooks so much, is if you've been wanting to get into a book club, but you just don't feel like you have the time or the energy or the attention to sit down and read in print, in text, I should say, either digital or print, um, you know, that might have been a barrier or you have someone in your book club that's always trying, you know, struggling to finish the book. You might try considering the audiobook for the book club because that takes another, you know, it uses different kinds of time in your day than than reading, sitting down and reading text. So one thing I was thinking about this week is, you know, you, if you've got some Christmas shopping to do out there. Or wrapping or gifts. Or wrapping gifts. An audiobook would be a good way. You know, it's a little crazy out at the malls. It's a little crazy out there where you're going. But listening to an audiobook does have this weird way of, you know, giving you a little solitude in the midst of a crowd situation. Um, so go to they've got some recommendations for you. PenguinRandomHouseAudio.com slash book club. Um, you can get some picks for books that are on audio, available in the audiobook. That would be great for a book club, maybe an idea for your next book club meeting, or if you want to start a book club, or maybe you're just looking for something that's interesting to read and their book club ideas are in the but usually book club ideas are sort of like Swiss Army picks. Like you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna find something that more than just one particular person's taste is going to be into that appeals to, you know, six to twelve people, a relatively diverse um interest in uh, aesthetic sensibility. So that's penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash book club to see the book club picks. And also be sure you, when you're there to enter their December giveaway of the best PRH audiobooks of 2015. Okay. Um, let's see. Book news. This is interesting. I think books a million, um, which is kind of the bookstore of note when you're in sort of a middle-sized strip mall town, right? I mean, that's kind of where right. you go. That's where you, if, if the town's not big enough really to support a Barnes & Noble, um, usually you're going to find a Books A Million, which is a combination of front list and discount books. It's kind of an interesting idea. It's a little more front list, I think, than something like half-price books. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also not, you know, it has discount titles as well. For a while, it was really burning up. Like, I remember it was like five or six years ago, like there was sense that, is Books a Million the future of retail bookstores, blah, blah, blah. Um, apparently, though, they've had hard times of late. And now they have been, they've moved from a publicly traded company to a privately traded company. And this is sort of insider baseball, but I, I just wanted to mention it for a couple of reasons. One is it's not going out of business, right? It had trouble publicly. Right. It's not going out of business. But I think there is... I think there is kind of a sense in books, at least, that for book, big book retail chains and maybe even publishers or a lot of people involved in the book mart, the book business, that privately owned is the way to go because books are a mature industry, and there's not a whole lot of growth there. Like you're not looking at five, six, seven, eight percent um, growth, net or gross revenue growth in any given year, year over year. Keep up with inflation maybe beat it a little bit, get some take-through efficiency, your family or your your holding company owns it, makes profit, generates cash, but it's not going to be 
a huge growth industry is a way to think differently about how book retail happens. I mean, that's kind of one thing that got borders into trouble is overexpanding, trying to go be a publicly traded company. They got too many stores. They got overexposed in cash. They had a lot of debt. They were mismanaged. And the, the, the dirty little secret about that is that there were a lot of individual borders locations that were very profitable. It's just that they, they overextended themselves and got into positions that couldn't support what they were trying to do. Um, and it took the whole ship down with them. So, you know, in a way, this is sort of a bad story for the business of books, but only if you think of the business of book as being sort of related to the um, the Teslas and Ubers and Apple right. computers and Dell computer. Well, actually, Dell went private recently. That's a bad – well, maybe an interesting – maybe more interesting example. Um, <laughs> that, you know, this is kind of a way of the book industry reconsolidating and re, re, retrenching in a sustainable way that doesn't have to – you know, fulfill the requirements of a certain kind of ex- business expectation. Have you ever been to a Books A Million? Have you been in these things before? I have, yeah. There's one in Richmond, mm, sort okay. of like it's in a strip mall section that's like off the highway between between like two major Richmond Yeah, that sounds suburbs. like all the Books A Millions I've ever been to. Right, yeah, and that. it's like this area was up until a couple years ago, it was fields and just like a highway ran through it that connected the one north side suburb to the south side right. suburb. And now there's a lot of traffic there and they're building, you know, McMansion, uh, sort of, you know, just like those, the houses where every one of them looks the same, like they were just plopped mm-hmm. out by a Dr. Seuss machine. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've been in, I've been in that one, but my, I think my first books a million experience was in Albany, Georgia, um, near the small town that my grandparents lived in. And we would go to Albany cause it was like the closest yep. place where there was anything. And there's a mall and there's a books a million that we would walk around in. Um, but yeah, that mix of front list new titles and deeply discounted, you know, backlist and remainders. It's been a while since I've been in one. I honestly just forget that books a million yeah. exists because yep. we hardly ever hear about it. We hear about Amazon and then we hear about Barnes and Noble as sort of the one potential chance to, you know, fight against Amazon or be an alternative alternative to Amazon. And nobody's ever talking about Books A Million. Every time there's a very rare Books A Million headline, we're like, oh, right, those guys. Yeah. I mean, they do exist in secondary tertiary markets. The one I had been to the most is in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and it's in a, you know, a kind of an outdoor mall, strip mall hybrid development. And it serves, you know, the kind of markets that for whatever reason, either cannot support an independent bookstore or independent bookstores don't think they can survive there. Either or both of those can be true. Um, And yet, for whatever reason, Barnes & Noble doesn't want to put a big flagship sort of store there as well. Um, In a pinch, you know, it's, I always think of it as kind of like B. Dalton bookstores that used to be Mm -hmm. in in malls. Um, They're not going to have everything, but if you're looking for something, you're looking for something, they're going to do, it's going to do the job for you. You know, it's not, it's not going to be for the hardcore book lover, their sole um, book uh, procurement solution. Well, that was weird. That was a odd, <laughs> odd, odd lexical acrobatics. Um, but you know, it's it's out there, and there's a lot more to book retailing. You know, half price books is one I've mentioned before, um, and they're out there. And there's 257 stores in 32 states, so they're all over the place, man. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to see that a different way of maintaining a book retail presence is is uh, in the in the works, they didn't go bankrupt. I what I heard is that they were thinking about going bankrupt. But it sounds like if they can just get a little money and go private, maybe they can make some money and, and stay alive. Yeah, definitely a story to keep following. I, I 
I'm still surprised, and I don't know, maybe no one wants to try it or the business is too hard, and I don't know if I've said this on the show before, that some, that Barnes & Noble or somebody hasn't tried sort of the Chipotle model of a chain of like quasi-independent bookstores, where you Mm. have small, like upmarket titles, you charge full retail, you know, it's, it's selected, it feels homey, it feels you good, good, good into but they're all they share the same infrastructure, so they do a lot of the shared buying and have negotiating power, and you know they have all the same legal and you know someone hasn't tried something like because I think maybe people don't know the story that I think Chipotle was you know started by one guy and then was bought by McDonald's and they spun it out, but they you know they had they tried this sort of you know all they just serve burritos and basically that's it, but people like it. It's a little more expensive. It's a little bit of a nicer experience than going into a McDonald's or a KFC or something like that. And it's also familiar at the same time. But I keep wanting Barnes & Noble to try something like that. They, you know, call it uh, whatever, whatever, you know, sort of milk toast independent bookstore name you're going to try. And they have, there's one in 50, and there's one in the big 50 biggest market in the U.S. Yeah, I want to see that too. And I want to see it with, you know, professional booksellers. Um, I've got some friends who still work for Barnes and Noble who still work in the store that I used to work in years and years ago. And the story from them and from my friends in in big box retail bookselling has been that the pressure from those big companies continues to increase to just be about sales and upselling. And so you're trying to sell the Barnes and Noble membership to every customer who comes in the door. Occasionally the like CEO decides that there's a book that they need to make a make book or um, I think it was most recently somebody at Barnes and Noble was trying to push City on fire, right? And I got I heard from friends who have boots on the ground that uh, you like you're supposed to try to hand sell City on fire to literally everyone because Barnes and Noble is trying to do something to impress Random mm-hmm. House with it, um, and that's counter to those things that we were talking about earlier that are what really make the engines of indie bookstores go, where it's trusted recommendations from people who really know their craft and know what's out in books in front list and back list who can listen to you talk about like the three things you read recently that you really loved and they know what to recommend. To you. So it would need to be, I think infrastructure from, uh, from a big company is the right way to go. But then you kind of take out the, the BS pieces of the big companies and you let them work the way um, an indie bookstore works to sell to that customer. You you have different cities or have different interests, like, you know, different local authors and different things going on. And it could be even like, you know, remember when Hard Rock Cafe was a thing? Were you old enough to know? Like, if you were in the town of Hard Rock, Rock. you'd want to go and see because they had a different collection and you get the t-shirt and they were all sort of the same, but they were all different enough that you'd want to go see what the Denver Hard Rock Cafe was like, um, or the Paris Hard Rock Cafe, or um, for a while it was really getting diluted, and there was like the Topeka Hard Rock mm-hmm. Cafe. And I, Talk I, about a, a time capsule. Oh, I know. Thing. I, <laughs> I think there's, I think some Hard Rock Cafes are still out there. I don't know if anyone there out there knows. I'd like to. like a point in my childhood where having a Hard Rock Cafe jacket was the thing. Oh, really? Yeah, that's. An, mm-hmm. I had a Hard Rock Cafe Aspen T-shirt. I was particularly proud of for reasons yeah, that, are, yeah. that are lost to the sands of time <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Uh, anyway, okay, we're running out of time. What else are we going to get to here? Uh, we are. Let's talk about let's let's do this weekend book banning. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sorry, um, I skipped that up. Ed. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. This is this is interesting. There's a school in Philadelphia. It's a Quaker school um, w- that has decided to remove the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn from their 11th grade reading list because of student complaints um, about students' discomfort with um, the N word and. The school's principal told parents in a letter that um, we've all come to the conclusion that the community costs of reading this book in 11th grade outweigh 
the literary benefits because some students, quote, found the use of the N-word to be challenging and that the school was not being inclusive. Uh, the school is guided by Quaker philosophy, as reported by the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, and they say they don't believe that they are censoring, but they believe that this is an opportunity for the school to step forward and listen to the students. Um, okay. Well... <sighs> I have thoughts. Yeah, but you go first. I mean, I think we're gonna think. Well, maybe we're gonna, maybe not. But I mean, I'm gonna guess, not knowing the particular demographics of this school, that Quakers aren't known for being particularly non-white. You know, I mean, I'm guessing this is a yeah, largely white school, maybe even exclusively white. I'm it guessing is a, it's the Friends Central School in Montgomery County, mm-hmm. um, and one of our contributors. We were talking about this behind the scenes. And one of our contributors said, "Yeah, that's a largely white area." So, and I think one of these things here that it does. Ma- I think that matters for what's going on. I think on. so too. You know, if it was a largely African American school um, with with black students and they didn't find it comfortable, I think that's a different conversation. And I, I'm not sure what I would think about it then, but let, I'm going to leave that to be a hypothetical. This smacks to me of not wanting to deal with something difficult and using political correctness as a cover is what it feels like to me. I agree. I think the response here, especially if, as we're guessing, these are primarily white students, is this is a word that is supposed to be uncomfortable. Um, The history of racism in the country, the racism that Mark Twain presents in Huckleberry Finn, the history of slavery in this country are unavoidable big, real, terribly true things. And those are unavoidable, big, real, terribly true things that we should be talking about in education. Um, and it's it, you should be uncomfortable with the fact that those things existed. Um, we should also be deeply uncomfortable with the fact that many people want those things to continue to exist. Right. Um, that's a conversation that should be had within the confines of educational Walls, and I do think it matters um, that it, that or if uh, this is a largely white community deciding that they're uncomfortable um, with this word. This is not the same thing as a student or a group of students saying that content in a book triggers them based mm-hmm. on their personal experiences, or if these were black students who were triggered by this language and had and and could bring context to it. The context of this objection really matters. Um, we don't know much about it, but what we can guess makes me think that this is the this is not the direction to go. And like these are eleventh graders; they're almost graduate. They're almost ready to graduate from high school. They're almost legal adults who are going to go out into the world, you should be deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I mean, because it's a it's it's actually not a slippery slope argument, because this is what's happening is it's basically sanitizing American history to make modern day white people feel better. I mean, that's what's happening here, right? Um, Mm -hmm. The the word as presented in and again, I'm hugely uncomfortable with the word. I think you are too. We're not going to say it. We're going to we're going to talk around the N word. The word, you know, we're going to do all the 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 lexical acrobatics. I didn't think I'd use that phrase twice in one podcast. <laughs> I wrote it down the yeah. first time you said so, it, so it's down. It's so, the show title. So now. <laughs> uh, to get around dealing with it um, immediately, but that's not to say that I'm not going to read Huckleberry Finn, and that's part of what's going on. Like I think if you're gonna if you're gonna teach Huckleberry Finn, this might be the reason to teach it now. Um, I, how, I what other it, book it are you going to teach in 11th grade that's even going to open up any – I mean, what other discussion I mean, are they going to have about books in 11th well, grade that's going to matter more than the discussion they could have about why they're uncomfortable and what's going well, on in the book if, right there? If they can't handle Huckleberry, Huckleberry Finn, they're not going to read Beloved. Like, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I don't it's, know. It's interesting because even 
it's, it's the other thing is it's not a dead word. The word is alive. I mean, it is alive right. in 2015 America and in a variety of different contexts and a variety of deployments and all those contextual pieces matter. It, it is not a static meaning that means everything and every utterance at all times. But the, the move here is to make 11th graders feel better about something they shouldn't feel good about. They should feel bad. Mm-hmm. About. They should, bad is the wrong word. They should have to confront. Yes. Um, and it's important that they confront. Um, because how else are you going to teach about American white supremacy historically and in the present if every time or even just one time you decide, you know, this is a little too uncomfortable this, this, so what is so is is reading about slavery comfortable? Well, that's creepy. I mean, you, you can't be saying that, right? Right. Or who's going to write the book that presents slavery in a way that makes white people comfortable? Yeah. And like that's why is that the book that we want to be or should be reading and putting in front of kids? This is I just don't really see a situation in which the decision that this school made is the right decision. Like, and it's interesting that this always happens with Huckleberry Finn. It's Huck like, Finn it's, yeah. The book is just a flashpoint for these issues, but it, it can be done well. Like my English teachers in suburban Kansas City did right by teaching Huck Finn mm-hmm. and had that conversation with us. We're going to read this book. It has the N-word in it. This is why this book is important in American history. Here's why Twain used that word, what he was doing. And we're going to address that. Um, and there's like nowhere whiter than the suburb I grew up mm. in. It can be done. Yeah. Um, and I think it should be. It should be done. I didn't get confronted with a lot of cultural things about racism and about white supremacy. But that was one piece that was important in my personal education. And I think it can and should be important and and done more. We need to be going in the other direction. Yeah. We need to be talking more about what the history of, of white supremacy and racism and slavery really did look like and how those things are still affecting the way that we live today and the way the country still runs today. And this is just, this is a bad job. Yeah, because it's one thing, I mean, we can argue it's maybe a more textual discussion and literary discussion than beyond the scope we can really get into here. But I think most people don't argue that that Huck, the the text itself is sufficiently racist to no longer be of interest and of, of use. I mean, Twain is of his time in a lot of ways. I think he's also not of his time in a lot of ways, which mm-hmm. makes the book interesting as a historical document and as a, as an alive literary document as well. Like it's not just a museum piece. I don't think there's things going on in Huck Finn, especially in in um, you know we don't get a lot of Jim's interior world, and that's one of the the, right. the racial pieces. But there's some things interesting, especially for a white student in Quaker wherever to think about Huck as a white person of power and privilege and that makes moral decisions. Um, and part of his decision is to see Jim other than the rest of the world decides to see him. And that is an interesting conversation to have uh, and, and and to have it right alongside with that also means in this book that this word exists right alongside this sort of awakening or whatever you think is happening mm-hmm. with Huck. It's right next to it. It's not apart from it. It's not separate from it. It doesn't overcome it. Um, but it happens at one and the same time. So it's unfortunate. And I think missing the forest for the trees of what we want or what I want to, I'll, I'll make it very specific, what I want for students who engage with literature that is anything beyond learning, reading comprehension and uh, uh, I before E and except after C. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I second that emotion. All right, let's call that a show. That is our so show. So thank you so much to Madman and Zipped. 
for sponsoring today's podcast. Thank you for, so much to Penguin Random House Audio for sponsoring today's podcast. If you want to email us what your, you know, one of your memorable stories we've talked about or you saw somewhere else or read about somewhere else, it doesn't have to be on the podcast because we could have skipped it and it was a huge story, uh, please do email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Also, if you want to email us your favorite books of 2015 and or um, books from 2015 you felt were just like everywhere that would go in a time capsule, your own personal time capsule. No, no, not your personal time capsule. Would go in a time capsule for to represent 2015 in books and reading. Do you ever see that episode? I'm sure you saw the episode of Parks and Rec where they were doing oh, yes. that time capsule. And um, Jeff, I've seen all yeah, the episodes Yeah, yeah, where uh, he's trying to make an argument to put uh, Twilight in. It's, Twilight, it's a pretty classic yeah. episode. Um, we'd like to hear those as well. As always, you can find show notes for this and back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. That's our show, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one.